This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Let's start here. Uh, Yesterday, the Minister of Housing for the province of Ontario resigned. And many thought that he should. Some thought, no, stick with this. And many told me he would. And many similarly said he's really important to this file. And here's what I here's what I won't do. And here's what is not for there's no time to do it, because if it was an eight hour show, maybe somebody would care about it among the eight hours. But we've got under three hours to go. Nobody, nobody cares about who. Did you hear Stan Cho is handling long term care now? Nobody really cares about cabinet shuffles. You'll go nowhere today. Nowhere today, except among that sort of chattering class. Like like one percent of one percent who really, really dig in on this stuff. And you'll be like, I cannot believe that cabinet shuffle yesterday. It's about housing and it's about homes and it's about whether political capital can be made of what has turned into a scandal. But no question, Doug Ford had to be nimble over the weekend, nimble Sunday night, nimble yesterday morning when Steve Clark woke up, drafted a piece of paper and quit. There was a lot of pressure for him to quit, and he resigned for no other reason that he's not spending more time with his family. He's still going to be an MPP. Do I think he's going to emerge in cabinet again? Yes, I do. Yeah, I do, but not anytime soon. This is the first notable cabinet shuffle in 15 months, and I'm going to tell you 15 rather successful popular months for this provincial government, but this green belt land swap thing has taken a casualty down besides Ryan Amato, who was Steve Clark's chief of staff. So he's been under fire for quite a while. And yesterday, snap of a finger, he quit. And I'm told by way too many people that I trust, he did this all himself. If someone's going to write, you know, write a column, write a narrative saying, oh, there was pressure. Duh, this is how they did it. Monday morning news dump after a Friday afternoon news dump after a Thursday before Labor Day news dump. That's not what happened here. Steve Clark just said, enough's enough. I am a distraction. I can recognize that. I've been in the game long enough, despite his relationship with cities. And I know in Toronto, not the most popular politician ever. Okay? But he works for Ontario. He doesn't just work for us here in Toronto. I know when you slice down the amount of wards from 48 to 25 after candidates have been running and signs are out, and doors are being knocked on, and you say, sorry, I know you started your Toronto election there, and I'm talking about the 18 election, obviously. Um, we're going we're gonna to re- recast this, and there's just going to be less people in the movie than you thought, 48 to 25. Steve Clark's fingerprints are all over that, but that's at the behest of Doug Ford. Yesterday, he did exactly what he wanted to do for himself. No pressure from anybody else within the conservative government. Now, does the pressure ease? Not sure. I'll get to that in just a sec. Here's Steve Clark from last week, and you can kind of hear it in his voice, the toll this was taking on him. I'm not saying I feel empathy because politicians have to be accountable and responsible. That's what we do here. We're going to make you responsible, accountable. If you're with the NDP, the liberals, federal, provincial, a mayor, a city councilor, you do something wrong, we're going to say so. Well, I don't go to lunch with politicians. I don't play favorites here. This is what Steve Clark said on Thursday. I accept that I ought to have had greater oversight uh, over my former chief of staff and over the process. And to Ontarians, I want to say very sincerely that I apologize that I did not. 
I'm uh, committed to making sure that the flaws of uh, the kind outlined in the report by uh, Justice Wake uh, do not happen again. That's why we've worked very closely and transparently with the Integrity Commissioner's Office, which he acknowledged yesterday in his report. Now, let me tell you again, Clark's very popular. Doesn't surprise me that he himself said he had to go. Some are surprised that Ford accepted the resignation, but I don't think I'm I'm sure that he didn't. Uh, Clark felt all the heat and he may have cracked. By the way, this was such an unnecessary scandal for a popular government that was on cruise control that was still hanging in there in in terms of popularity. And they don't have to be popular right now. They don't have to be popular. They got to be popular when it circles back around again in 2026. Doesn't matter how popular they are now. There's no pressure, no heat that could cause the government to crack. So this they really made a scandal on their own terms. They, like this was a product of incompetence and hubris. I don't know which it was more of, but it's two things. And it's both. John Fraser, the Ontario Liberal leader for the interim until they choose another one later on this fall, heading into uh, December, said this yesterday. Premier needs to open the books and waive cabinet privilege. You know, we've called for a committee meeting this week to start the process of looking at what's happened here. You know, with each passing day, there's a new revelation that, you know, makes it evident that it all roads lead back to the premier's office on this uh, $8.3 billion Greenbelt giveaway. Okay, the $8.3 billion Greenbelt giveaway. By the way, what I uh, am finding a struggle with with the 8.3, these were real estate properties. These were parcels of land valued in 2018. What do you think they're worth now? More or less? This is more than $8.3 billion. This might be double what $8.3 billion is. Here's the problem again for John Fraser, for Mart Stiles, for anybody who's watching this hoping that hard times are going to befall the Ford government. What if they return the land to the green belt? I mean, if everything else is window dressing, let's say, ah, those 14 recommendations can't even think of what they are. Can't even think of the one you like the most, huh? The 15th recommendation, they push it back. It's the most important long term. It's the most important thing that they enacted. If they push it back, where do the liberals have to go? Where does the NDP have to go? Again, it's window dressing on the concept of we need more housing. It's window dressing on the concept of what if, just what if the green belt was being utilized to put up apartment buildings and affordable housing. But you know, and I know, by the way, the guys that bought the green belt land, they also know it's not going to be. These will be big houses. These will be the houses you see on golf courses. These will be the houses that everybody's got that rich friend. No, I don't I don't mean rich. I mean really rich. Everybody's got that rich friend and you drive down that long laneway and you park your car and they have a big backyard and they're having a garden party in the summer or you go over there for for a big event and you're like, "Wow, whatever we're doing, they're doing more." That like you say that. That's the kind of house that's getting built in this green belt land. It's not multiplexes. You know that, and I know that. You can text the show 416 870 6400. Two down, two guilty parties down, so it would seem in terms of Ryan Amato, Steve Clark. But I'm telling you, that's it. There's not much more that's going to touch the premier here, and they will strongly consider, strongly consider putting the land back. And at that point in time, They're going to get credit. You don't have to like it. They're going to get credit for, oh, see, they saw the light. They felt the pressure. They saw, 
because they just gave you, Steve Clark just gave himself up, and many people didn't think that he would. Many people thought he was too important to the file. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Uh, I love having our next guest on, and I I also realize it's been way too long uh, since we visited with him. You often hear him on uh, with John Oakley. He is the leader of the Ontario Green Party. He is Mike Schreiner. Mike, thank you very much for giving us your time this morning. I appreciate it. I hope you had a great Labor Day weekend also. Morning, Greg. Uh, had a good weekend, but I was going to say it was a pretty busy weekend talking about the Greenbelt scandal, so not a lot of time off. Well, let's let's focus on that then. The Saturday coverage of this is a big story in the Toronto Star. The Trillium broke this story about all these investors and aliases, and someone described as Mr. X, which several media organizations believe is the former mayor of Clarington. I would just point it this way. I noticed people, Mike, that didn't pay attention to what was going on with the Greenbelt scandal like you or I would. And I started hearing from them Saturday afternoon going, this looks really shady, really shifty. That's my own anecdote. But when that happened Saturday, did you start to think there's a lot more attention to this than maybe previously? Well, when you have a scandal that includes a Mr. X, uh, you know the government's in trouble. And certainly, uh, as Mr. X was identified, it starts to open up a bit of understanding of the money trail. And what's clear is, is Ford Connected Insiders, in the case of Mr. X, are making billions off of this so their clients can make billions off of this scandal. And I think it just amped the outrage level even higher. You asked for the Minister of Housing to resign. Um, now there's there's benefit in, in terms of calling out the government and, and then they deliver. But is there ever an element where you say, you know what, I've been watching Doug Ford in this government for five years. You have been doing that, Mike. And sometimes they 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 listen to the tea leaves. They read the tea leaves. They listen to the to the chatter and they give the public what they want. Are they making themselves accountable by Steve Clark not being the housing minister this morning? Okay, I would say it's a small step towards accountability. But quite frankly, this is too little too late. Uh, The minister should have resigned after the first scathing report three weeks ago. And then, you know, he should have resigned immediately after the second scathing report five days ago. And the fact that it took so long, you know, raises some serious questions. And I think it's shown that the premier and the housing minister both have failed the accountability test. And I have a message for the premier. If he thinks his $8.3 billion Greenbelt scandal is going away with his housing minister's resignation, He's wrong. People understand that we had a corrupt process that led to a corrupt decision, and that decision has not been reversed. A handful of Ford Connected insiders are still going to cash in $8.3 billion at our expense, and Greenbelt land is still slated to be paved over. That is wrong. The premier must reverse this decision and restore all Greenbelt land protections. Mike Schreiner is joining us, leader of the Green, uh, Ontario Green Party on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. Um, someone brought this up to me and I thought it made sense. If all or most of the Greenbelt land was being used, Mike, for lower middle income housing, the kind of housing that Mayor Olivia Chow proposes in Toronto, let's say. Cam Guthrie is your very outspoken mayor in Guelph. He wants to do that as well and build more homes for university students. If that was the case, and it isn't, 
would we be more understanding that something needed to be done quickly? We do need the space. To me, what irks people is the idea. It's just the typical gigantic mansions, houses beside golf courses that they'd almost exclusively be. If we were building affordable housing on the green belt, would there be any more political will for it? Well, Greg, I certainly support Mayor Guthrie's uh, advocacy for more housing in Guelph. I've been working with him on that. Support uh, Mayor Chow's uh, push for more government involvement in deeply affordable uh, co-op, nonprofit, and social housing. But here's the reality when it comes to the Greenbelt. Every study that's been done, including by the government's own Housing Affordability Task Force and confirmed just a few weeks ago by the Auditor General, clearly state that the housing crisis is not being caused by a shortage of land. As a matter of fact, there's already enough land approved for development to not only build the 1.5 million homes we all agree on, but to build 2 million homes. And you could even increase Mm -hmm. that more if we increase density levels. So there is no need to open the Greenbelt for development. Opening the Greenbelt has never been about housing. It's about helping a handful of well-connected Ford insiders cash in billions of dollars. And what's infuriating is, is we're in a real housing crisis. We need the premier being focused on building homes that average everyday Ontarians can afford in the communities they want to live in instead of breaking all the rules so a handful of elite developers can cash in $8.3 billion. How much, when people say, how much can I really invest in this in terms of caring about the political capital? And I ask that because an election's ages from now. You and I know this. Like, we're talking at earliest, 28, 30 months away. March of 26 might be the earliest. We go back, and it's probably a couple months after that. So how does this hold for the process for the next time people decide, well, I want to vote, and I'd vote differently based on the green belt. They got a lot of time. A lot of things can happen in that period of time. Well, there is no doubt a lot can change in politics in, you know, three years. Uh, But I can tell you the people of Ontario are outraged about this $8.3 billion scandal. The signs, I mean, I travel around the province. There are signs everywhere saying, Premier, keep your promise. Don't touch the green belt. There's rallies, pop-up protests happening everywhere. And people Mm. are going to continue to put pressure on this government until the Premier does the right thing, steps up to a microphone and says, you know what, I've heard you, I'm going to keep my promise, we're not going to open the green belt for development. And then beyond that, you know, I absolutely support the RCMP uh, investigating this. Like, I think the Auditor General and the Integrity Commissioner's reports raised a number of questions that haven't been answered yet. And I'm also calling for an independent public inquiry, because I think the people of Ontario deserve honest answers. How could a handful of board-connected insiders direct government policy in a way to benefit them by the tune of $8.3 billion? And how could protections on land that's supposed to be protected forever be removed by the stroke of a pen? We need to make sure something like this never happens again. Um, How... How accountable do you also want to make uh, mayors in Ontario? We just talked about affordability. We just talked about housing. And you know that some are uh, are more amenable to building than others. NIMBYism is a thing. It's a real term. There's uh, We've had Tom Maracas on the show from Aurora, for example. But people in Aurora criticize him. It's been well documented. A lot of people in Mississauga look at the housing starts for Bonnie Crombie and they say, not a lot's been done. They've said no way more than yes. How much do mayors need to step up to the table here? Greg, I think all three levels of government need to step up to the table and do more on housing. 
It's going to take a coordinated approach, municipalities, the province, and the federal government. One of the things I have, I have two bills on the order paper right now that really get at the heart of rapidly increasing housing supply that people can afford in the communities they want to live in by changing zoning rules to make it easier to build multiplexes. The city of Toronto has done that. We need to see that in communities across Ontario and also to make it easier to build apartments along major transportation corridors. That's what we want to build apartments where you already have infrastructure in place, not way out on the green belt where we then will have to spend billions of dollars building roads and sewer lines and water lines and all of that. So I don't understand why the government doesn't say, hey, Mike, let's pass your bill so we can get to building the housing people can afford in the communities they want to live in. That's it. No, that's it. And I know, like I said, Mayor Guthrie, where you are, uh, wants to make some some big moves. And, and he's looking through the front of the car, not the rearview mirror, because we're just, we need to do better now, but we also need to make sure we're not talking about this three, four, five years from now. I got a blast, Mike. Thanks so much for the time today. I hope you have a great Tuesday. Hey, you too, Greg. Bye for now. All right, Mike Schreiner joining us, uh, leader of the Ontario Green Party. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Why do grade nines get their own day at many schools today? That's the case. I got no. I got kids sleeping until 11 a.m. again. That's the last thing I need when I get home today is to wake them up. They should be out doing things, gardening, um, you know, being nice to the neighbors, walking like old ladies and old men as my age across the street, whatever. But they'll be in bed because grade nines get their own day. Now, Shiva Siddiqui has a grade nine starting. And you tell me your board, and I know the Thames Valley board in London, you got an entire PA day today, a professional development advancement day yes. today. Yes, they have a PDA day today. They start tomorrow, but my grade, he's going into grade nine, my eldest. Right. And um, so it's Exciting. actually, he gets a, I'm very excited. How's mom doing? Oh, I'm so excited for him. High school <laughs> was some of the best awesome. years of my I life. I loved high school I too. loved high school too. So I really hope he has a great high school experience. I, I warned him about the swirly though. You taught me what a swirly was. I don't think it's been given out since 1993 <laughs> and I only... Almost got it about like four times, and then I decided don't say any, don't go out to the smoking pit and start pointing at people, and then you won't get a swirl. Oh, that okay. was my that was my introduction. Okay, well, I, I warned him about what swirlies are, so just watch out for a swirly <laughs> when you go to the bathroom or whatnot. Uh, but I'm excited for him. So he gets he goes for a half day, and then after that half day, it's only grade nines. Now he's there all day, sorry, but at the halfway mark of the day, the tens to twelves show up for school. So the grade nines get the school for the first half of the day. And I kind of like that. I never had that. I know we never had that, but I'm like, trial by fire is like, jump right in and go. No, I know we baby them. uh, I know this is, I know I hate the whole baby thing. You know how I I feel about that. I know you do. I'm so tough on my kids. Yeah, you're not a helicopter parent. Oh, I'm not at all. I know you're not. So I'd throw them in the fire. But for him, I just, you know, you get to know the school. You get to know where your locker is, where your classes are. It's the first time they have like a different teacher for every subject. I, I just want them to sort of, you know, acclimatize to that and then bring in the bullies. Yeah, it's it's a weird one. My my recollection is here's now. Now, again, I don't think any day would have prevented this. My second week of school, I left a science class to go to the bathroom. And I could I still in the second week thinking, I don't know where the bathroom is on the second floor of the school. I hadn't been in one, so, but I need to go and I'm I'm hustling. And I went into what I didn't know was the teacher's lounge. <laughs> no way. And I went into like a bath. I just turned right into a bathroom. And I'm like, this can't be right. It must have been the cleanest bathroom you've ever seen in a school. Yeah, it was. And so high school. And like, there were no I, teachers in the lounge? Well, no. One guy. Then I'm leaving. And Mr. McGee, who I eventually found out was a geography teacher. 
uh, what was like, what do you think you're doing? And he was ready to walk me to the vice principal's office for like basically like invading. The, he must have thought I was ransacking it. And I, I'm like, I was petrified. And I'm like, I didn't know where the bathroom. And here's how nervous I was. I heard him coming in and I left the sink running. <laughs> so I'm halfway down the hallway thinking, wow, that was close. And he calls me back and says, you got to turn the sink off. Like he made me do it. He oh, didn't do good. it himself. I like that. Yeah. But see, if you had gone to school for half a day solo, you would know where that well, the bathroom was. And if he doesn't, if he sees me three minutes later, he assumes that I sabotaged the teacher's office by trying to flood it. <laughs> but I think I flushed. I'm sure that I flushed, actually, to be honest. Oh, it was a very, very uh, lengthy process, the flushing. But I left the sink on to wash my hands and he would have been like this. By the way, that sink would have overflowed. It's a tiny sink. So I would have been accused of like trying to, you know. Deservedly so. Probably so. Um, so I was out in the uh, in my own community on Friday, and uh, and I and you spotted this column from Brian Lilly, and we kind of had the same kind of conversation about it. So you are you good talking about your your school orientation for your second grader? Absolutely. Okay, I good. Am. Okay, tell me tell so, me what what the issue is. So he's starting a new school. He's going to school now with his with my second and third born. So they're going to be in this, like my eldest is in high school. The, the younger three are all going to be in the same school. He goes to a new school because he's starting French immersion. For new listeners, you have four children. I have four children, yes. Yeah, we're not describing four of the eight that you have. You have only the four. <laughs> only, yes. Right, right. And uh, so he had an orientation last week, I believe it was. Uh, and I know the school inside out. I know the school where, you know, we're very active in the community. We're on the school council. We do a lot of stuff with the school. Uh, but he's and he knows it as well because of his siblings. But you know, it's his orientation to go in the school, see the class, meet the teachers, all that. And we went in, and it was a one-hour session where you know they do icebreakers, they play games. These are six and seven-year-olds. Yeah. And then they sit down and they do a little talk about you know what time school starts and nutritional breaks and recess, all that. What time school ends? Uh, introduce you to you know the grade two teachers that'll be there. One of them is going to be yours. And then they spent, of the 60 minutes, they spent about 10 minutes talking about your sexual preference. And at first I'm like, okay, okay, that's, you know, it's it's good. Like they're introducing it, stay, 10 seconds, throw it in there. It was almost, almost 10 minutes of the six and seven year old session talking about your sexual preference and the clubs that they have that are geared towards your sexual preference. Uh, and I'm sitting there thinking, my kid, doesn't he, he, I know he doesn't think about this. I know this because he tells me everything. He's I'm his best friend. And there is an age where that needs to be addressed in schools to students. I don't think grade two is it. Grade, two, it, grade two isn't it. I'm no. beside myself hearing that story. Oh, I was. And I And I know you don't want to you don't want to rumble in and, and make a bunch of noise and, exactly. and throw, throw uh, furniture around. And you around. know how they did it? You know how it was? I, it was grade eights that introduced the topics. Geez. So each grade eight stood forward. And I don't read love that. I like that even less. Yes, exactly. So it wasn't what even they don't coming want from to. the teachers. It was coming from the grade eights. And that's, you know, I, I'm sure they're on this council, on the Senate, whatever it is. And they're trying to welcome these younger kids into the school and being positive and lots of energy. Uh, but he stood there and he read from your sexual preference and the options you have in the school. And these kids weren't even listening. They're staring at the ceiling. They're looking like they're, they're getting bored because it's going on. They, they want to move. They want to move around. And I just thought, what are you guys doing? What are you doing? I'm, I, I, I bet you a lot of our listeners, you can text us by the way, if you've got a reaction to that story, 416-870-6400 are yeah. B- beside themselves. There is an age, there is a role. Yes. There's an important role for educators to play if students want to come and talk to an educator 
about something they feel they can't share with a sibling or a best friend or a peer group or a parent or a coach or whatever. There's a role. There's a role. And but that's I've never heard of that. And that's the age where, again, there's no sense of to me, there's no real even sense of how would I put it? Like you, there's no sense of desire at that age. There's no sense of what's attractive and what's not. I think you're starting to build that. And I know every age is different, but that's that crap crazy to me at seven. And I don't understand. And it. I'm sorry. It and, is. But even even so, let's take it up a notch. I'm let's, not sorry. Let's go to the older grades, right? Our federal government believes that they're doubling down on the position that parents have no right to know if their children are changing their name, their gender, or their pronouns at school. You see this every public school you go into. The first sign you see outside is this is a safe space. They sure. tell the kids you're in a safe space. To me, before when I was younger, that meant you know there's going to be no stranger that comes in, whatnot. Now a safe space means you can be whoever you want to be, and we're not going to tell your parents. And I just I haven't. My kids' safe space is their home with their parents who love them, who are going to have these conversations with them, who are going to accept them for whoever they are. But when you're teaching kids that, hey, we'll keep secrets from your parents for you on your behalf, I have a problem with that. Yeah. And it's, uh, I'm going to say this again. For gender, it's an incredibly small percentage. We need to understand that the, the number is incredibly small. And do we need um, do we need a system and we need a rule, Shiva? Because right now it's it's the Wild West and it's chaos. And and some teacher might handle it a different way than another teacher. I want I want there to be some kind of guideline, not guidance, but guideline so that everybody knows what the rules are. Like we know what rules are. We, we know rules about consent. Right. And so to me, if you can consent, Nova Scotia has that at 12 for pronouns of gender issues. And yes. they've had that for about a decade. Saskatchewan just ruffled a lot of feathers yes. by saying, no, that age is 16. So I don't know what the middle ground is. Can we freaking agree it's not seven? No. It's not seven. It's not, and six. Six-year-olds. That you go, six and hey, seven. you don't have to tell daddy or mommy. This will just be our little secret. And that's almost never, ever going to happen. But were it to, at seven, eight, nine, ten, I'm sorry. The parent has to know. And and by the way, the polls document that. It's almost four to five people in Ontario. And I don't know if people are just out to lunch on this they aren't parents, so they can't possibly relate. I have no idea. I don't know either. I don't understand it. I don't know what's going on. I just feel like, and, and you know what bugs me? My kids in private, my yeah. friends who have kids in private school just smirk and they're so smug about it. None of that's happening in private schools. No. That's all I hear. That's all I hear. But parents care about this. Believe me, I heard about it on Friday. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. It's a big fall. I, I You know, no one wants to call anything make or break, but it's pivotal for the TTC. And all of us have seen busy weekends in the summer for it, for sure. Huge events. You know, you're going to Blue Jays games, TFC, the X. Um, uh, Caribbean Carnival, all that stuff keeps transit really busy. But when we all, the fun kind of stops a little bit and we all get back to work and school. How busy will it be? And uh, and how can we get it back? Because as transit goes, the city goes. Many people strongly feel that way. We want to welcome on the new TTC board chair. He visited us in studio a few weeks ago and we've got him now. He's Councillor Jamal Myers. It's great to have you on. Thanks very much for making the time, Jamal. I appreciate it. 
Thanks for having me again. Hope you had a great long weekend. I did. I did. I took transit also. I uh, <laughs> We came down Sunday night for the uh, Guns N' Roses concert. I saw a lot of people coming back from the CNE. I know the TTC, the subway, was busy. My own son came down yesterday and took his first ever, we're out in Ajax, but he was on the streetcar for the first time ever. I'm like, that's my boy. Get used to that streetcar if you're going to go to school in Toronto. Get used to it. Awesome. Now, give me give me that sense. I use the word pivotal. How do you view the next few months? Because as I said, transit habits, our own habits are a lot different in October than they are in July. How pivotal are the next few months for ridership to return to what we hope it will be? So, I mean, I think to set expectations, we don't expect ridership to return to 100% of pre-pandemic levels in the next uh, few months. What we can expect is to do the work internally to get us ready for ridership to eventually go back up to 100% pre-pandemic levels. So that's looking at, you know, streetcars are a perfect example, looking at what we can do internally or what we can do, you know, that doesn't require extra funds. So for example, when we have our streetcar network and we have cars making left turns and they're holding up the entire streetcar network, that's something that we can change. That doesn't require any funding from government, but that's just something that we can look at in our own internal process to make our streetcar system more efficient. When the system is more efficient, it'll attract more riders. You watched um, uh, Olivia Chow, before she was mayor, run for mayor and say, I'm going to roll back some of the service cuts. What has been rolled back? What's been restored that um, John Tory had, had just felt forced to cut based on budget issues? So because of the delay in opening the Eglinton Crosstown, we had an extra $106 million in operating funding that we then redeployed to get service standards back up. I don't know the exact figures, but I think we went from about 91% of pre-pandemic levels to about 98, 99% uh, pre-pandemic levels. Um, But, you know, like I've said on your show and I've been, you know, what the bear and I have said is, now we want to go beyond that. We, you know, travel patterns have changed because of the pandemic. So it's not simply restoring service to what it was pre-pandemic. It's looking at where people actually go and adjusting the services to match where people are actually going within the city. So much of it, too, Jamal, is people coming back to uh, to workplaces. And I know there's oh, there's still that kind of. There's still that kind of push and pull. I'm, I'm sure every office is unique. Every employee and employer is unique. But are you getting the sense there's a bit of a groundswell for people to say, yeah, uh, I, I want to see faces again. I want to be part of that atmosphere. It works for me and transits the best way for me to get there. So I'm definitely hearing that from employers, from business improvement areas, from businesses, um, not hearing that as much from workers. Um, a lot of people have just gotten used to, you know, working home from home. Uh, they've proven themselves that they can work effectively from home two to three days, two to three days a week. They were working from home full time during the pandemic. So again, it's really about making transit more attractive. So for example, maybe they're not taking transit, you know, five days a week to go downtown. Doesn't mean they can't take transit when they're working from home. Um, so we, again, we just have to make sure that the service level is working within their local area so that maybe they can leave the car at home if they want to, you know, grab lunch somewhere, or they want to make a trip after work that we can make transit that alternative option because the TTC at the end of the day is indifferent where that fare comes, whether that person's going downtown or where that person's just traveling around their neighborhood. We make the same, same level of revenue. 
Jamal Myers is our guest, the new TTC board chair, is also city councilor, uh, joining us on 640 Toronto and Toronto Today. I know we're uh, sweating buckets today, and it could be like a 41 Humidex, but you also know our winters are cold. And sometimes people need to know that, I just mentioned, buses will be reliable in the snow, and streetcars and the subways will be reliable in really cold weather. To me, that's the time when you don't want to drive. Driving in the snow, you're going you're, you're gonna to double what a commute is uh, when people are breaking all the time in snow or heavy rain compared to dry conditions. That's a big selling point. It has to be that reliability, that punctuality with transit in the winter when people are like, I, I don't want to drive when, when the snow's coming down. Exactly. And not just reliability and punctuality, it's also safety. Because as we saw last winter, you know, with the increase in cold, you see uh, more and more people using the TTC for shelter. So again, safety is a huge part of making sure that people feel comfortable using the TTC and that making sure that, you know, we're running a safe, reliable and accessible service. Jamal Myers is our guest on Toronto Today. One more on transit. Um, You've documented, it's been documented in a few places, and we talked about it too, that you're very familiar with CTC. You take it. um, You're from Scarborough, and you know how important transit is. We had that uh, derailment a a few months ago, and we never got that train uh, on back, and it was kind of unofficially retired a couple weeks ago. So you've been talking uh, to Rick Leary. You've been led Rick Leary, the CEO, know what's needed and what's not. How important is that relationship? And and do you plan to you know stay on him as it were? I know you you have the same goals in mind, but your expertise has to be helpful for him. I mean, definitely. I think you know there's a is a certain level of uh, mutual respect and mutual dependence that goes between the TTC CEO and the TTC chair. Uh, you know, my job is to effectively govern in the organization and his job is to manage it. And I'm overseeing that. So I really want to make sure that any advice I've been giving him is not stepping on his toes and, you know, vice versa. So we have a very respectful two-way dialogue going on. Um, but it's really about, you know, emphasizing that, you know, Scarborough Transit riders have gotten the short end of this transit stick for a very long time. Um, that is one thing that I definitely, when I took the role said, you know, that was one of my objectives to correct. Uh, and, you know, just a small, um, a small act is my very first act as TTC chair is, you know, we're going to have our first TTC meeting at Scarborough Civic Center, which, you know, might not yeah. seem like a big deal to many people, but it's important because we're going to be discussing line three. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people from Scarborough will want to depute and make their presence known. Well, rather than having to go downtown, now they can just go to Scarborough mm. Civic Center. So it's just having that lens yeah. and, you know, that, you know, that knowledge of what's actually happening on the ground that I think makes me more effective and it makes the advice I give to the CEO better. Jamal Myers, our guest on Toronto Today. Now, um, this you're on the Toronto Zoo board and um, it's been noted, David Ryder wrote a story about it over the weekend, that the CEO got a 20% pay raise, um, and it's noted in the headline, amid city's financial crisis. I mean, there's been some criticism. My eyebrows perked up. What's fair criticism about this, or, or what would you say to, to say, well, no, that's a $50,000 raise, and it's, it's money well-earned by the CEO? Well, I mean, if you actually read the article, uh, the headlines are a bit misleading, because if you actually read the article, you know, I think it's very clear that the, the, the zoo, the zoo board at least, is very, very happy with the CEO. The CEO didn't advocate for this raise. Um, attendance is up 11% over the budgeted figures. Memberships are strong. The zoo is doing really, really well. And when we actually compared the CEO's 
pay to other zoos like Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, um, he was underpaid. And even with the raise, he's still underpaid. But someone might say Cincinnati doesn't have a billion dollar deficit or Pittsburgh doesn't have a billion dollar municipal deficit right now. They might say that. That's true. But you also have to take into account that you want to retain talent. Yeah. There's nothing stopping the CEO from the zoo from saying, you know what, I'm going to take this job in Cincinnati because we have a billion dollar deficit. If we have a CEO that's effectively performing that year over year is beating his expectations, and I think everyone who's been to the zoo can say, you know, there's some real good changes happening there. I was there a couple of weeks ago to see the opening of the orangutan exhibit. That wasn't all city funding. That was private fundraising as well. This CEO is on the ground. He's turning the organization around. I think the membership numbers are, or sorry, the attendance numbers are the highest since 2016. So if we're paying an extra $50,000, yes, we're paying extra money, but is the, the CEO actually doing their job effectively? Yes. And we want to make sure that he stays in Toronto. By the way, I'm sure uh, there will never again be a headline that doesn't replicate exactly what's in the body of the story. Uh-huh. That just would never happen, Jamal. You know the media. That would never, ever happen in the media. It never happened during the pandemic. I can assure you of that. Um, but I'll leave that. Thank you for the time today. I appreciate you coming on the show. No worries. Thank you very much. Uh, Jamal Myers uh, joining us on Toronto Today. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. What would you do if you lived in a neighborhood? You'd been there a decade. Pretty idyllic, pretty normal. You know, the normal stuff does happen from time to time. And all of a sudden you started seeing uh, drug needles and drug paraphernalia on the sidewalk. Not in certain areas, but on the sidewalk. And then that problem got worse and it didn't get better. Our next guest wrote about this in the National Post last week. It's happening in his neighborhood, in our city. And we thank uh, Derek Finkel for spending some time and coming on with us. Derek, thanks very much for the time. I appreciate you coming on. No problem. Good morning. How much How much did you feel uh, you wanted to get out? You didn't want to leave much on the table. I read this about a week ago, um, but it's it's harrowing. And and I think any parent, and I don't think you have to have kids even to put yourself in this position, put, uh, put your own parents in this position as elderly people and finding the scenarios you have found in your neighborhood. It's, it's no good. Yeah, it's... Um... Yeah, it's funny when I wrote that piece, and I will say, if, if anyone reads it, it it's, it's 7,500 words. I got to say everything I wanted to say, and kudos to the National Post for giving me the space to say everything I wanted to say. It's a long story. It goes back uh, years. Uh, this safe injection site, which is in the uh, South Riverdale Community Health Center in Leslieville on Queen Street East, it's, as you said, I, I live, I've lived across the uh, street from it now for almost 15 years. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of the things we're talking about, you, you mentioned needles, um, but, you know, right now it's the first day of school and there's two people who are zombified by fentanyl in one of the laneways, uh, just got, just before I came on right now, uh, right now where the children walk to school, uh, you know, this, this, this safe injection site is controversially half a block from Moore Street Junior Public School, which has almost 500 children in it, and there are there's another school and three daycares that are all within 100, I think 130 meters of this safe injection site. And the reason why myself and many of the, my my fellow uh, neighbors started to um, you know rally or get express our concerns about this safe injection site years ago, long before this summer. Um, was because it made absolutely no sense to us 
that young children, you know, from, you know, the age of five up to the age of, you know, 11 or something like that should be, it should have to walk to school through what is, was essentially an open air drug emporium and at times resembled a war zone. And, um, it just made no sense. And, you know, and, and all the last thing I'll say is just that, you know, what we've discovered in the last, you know, several months, uh, six months or so is that, you know, they actually had a responsibility to provide a safe zone and to have a zero tolerance drug uh, selling policy outside their area. And, the problem ultimately is that these places, it's, it's almost impossible for them to um, operate safely. Um, harm reduction, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled more than a decade ago, cannot come at the expense of public safety. And in short, that, that's what's happened here. There's also four pillars of a drug set strategy, Derek. I know you know it, but I'll, I'll give it to the listeners in case they don't. It's harm reduction, but it's prevention and it's treatment. And it's enforcement. And the argument could be made about Leslieville and some other places that as idealistic as some were about these places, that you're, you're, you might be getting one and a half out of the four at best, at best. You're not getting enough prevention. You sure aren't getting treatment and you're definitely not getting enforcement. Yeah, well, let's start with enforcement. Enforcement, the, the, you know, this place, the, the, the residents of this area were promised back in 2016 before the site opened that the health center had a great relationship with the police. Well, as it turns out, once the site was operating, the, the, the relationship with the, the police went downhill really fast because harm reduction you know, activists believe that police should not be on the perimeter uh, of, of these sites because it, it supposedly intimidates the clients from coming to see harm reduction. So the, whole pol- the police were not there, which is why the drug dealers were there, which is why Carolina... Stephen Macarat was shot on July 7th. Yeah. And uh, so that's the police. That's the police part. The treatment part is very difficult to gauge because the statistics are, are very difficult to parse because they talk about referrals from their harm reduction programs, which there's more than just safe injection. There's other, there's clean needle programs. There's other things, but we don't really know whatever happens to these people in part because of privacy laws. Like, you know, they get referred we don't know how many people actually show up to the referrals or what happens once they're referred. Like we have no, no clue. And um, I think the, the, the real lesson from these places is that they're experimental and, you know, um, they didn't really know what was going to happen. And I think the other thing I was going to say is that these safe injection sites were basically born from the heroin crisis in Vancouver from more than a decade ago in East Vancouver. And we're not even dealing with heroin anymore. Heroin is like, three percent of the it's that like it's it's administered three percent fentanyl is over 80 percent and fentanyl is the drug that is causing these problems they only have four booths in this little place and they don't you know and and frankly they've also conceded more people want to use outside they go get the needles and they just use in the first place they've got you posted a picture of a baggie um and so and you you know it was found it was zipped up but it was like a hard uh, orange uh, rock of fentanyl in there. And you say a neighbor's five-year-old found that and brought it home or, or, or at least showed it to a, to one of um, her or his parents. Can you walk us through that timeline? Yeah, that happened back in May. And uh, the parent in question <clears throat> is a, a representative of the residents on Pape Avenue, uh, right around the corner from me and right around the corner from the center. 
And all of these streets here have rear lanes, like they're old school Toronto streets. And so everybody has a little tiny parking garage or yeah. a parking pad behind their house. And so anyway, what happened was uh, the, 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 the resident's name is Ashley. She has a five-year-old son. He uh, walked out his rear gate uh, into his lane where many of the kids play here, which is another huge problem I won't get into where they're, they're dealing with, you know, uh, people overdosing, using violence, everything. And, um, he's picked up this baggie that had a, you know, like, as you said, a a spongy, it almost looks like Play-Doh, right. Of, of fentanyl. And, uh, he's thankfully brought it to his mother. He didn't open it. Um, but the mother called the police. They had it tested. It was fentanyl Mm. and the test results showed it would have killed like, you know, him and his probably most of a classroom of children if they had, you know, ingested it or whatever. When you when you we're talking to Derek Finkel, by the way, and we're talking about the Leslieville uh, safe injection site, which he lives near and he wrote an op ed about it in the National Post. I will say again, I I, I think we'll look at this 10, 15 years from now, Derek, I hope sooner and go. This wasn't about politics like this was this isn't about left, right, center, ideology, any of this stuff. I I just think we're looking at this. We're going to look at this like gay marriage, like we're going to shrug our shoulders and go, why did anybody have a problem with this? But we all should have a problem with the concept that compassion isn't letting people be passed out in alleys and compassion isn't letting people get worse and worse and worse into the into the hold of addiction. It's it's trying to help. And tough love is still tough love at the end of the day. When when I say that, do you think do you think this can have a a resolvement if all levels of government work together? Can we fix your neighborhood? Well, the the problem is. This, these, you know, this type of addiction, it's attached to a whole bunch of other things. You know, it's attached to homelessness, economics, mental health, many things. And, you know, I think for us as residents, what we're focused on, every time you bring up the fact that there's a safety issue um, or children are walking by a building where people are shooting up or beating each other up or whatever else, you know, they bring up homelessness or that they're trained to just kind of, in a way, it's a form of obfuscation. And what yeah. we have to do what we have to do is focus on the safety. It's, it's a legally binding concept. They, it's, it's part of a social, not even a social contract. It's a literal contract. And, 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 and that's what we're focused on. I agree that treatment is, is like very underwhelming in this province. They have to come up with a way. But, but even, even on, the, on the safety thing, like I think our, our MP, Julie DeBruzen, for this writing, you know, she's kind of tabled the possibility of having, you know, replacing um, these safe injection sites with more of a, of a mobile, uh, um, you know, idea where, you know, most of the clients who use our safe injection site live a block and a half away at a Wood Green Community Health. Right. Center. So it's so not it's not, not bricks and mortar. It's it's not bricks and mortar. It's mobile. Yeah. Take, yeah. Take it to them. Yeah. And then they don't have to come to us. And then it doesn't uh, become an epicenter of activity. You know what I mean? I hear you loud and clear. Hey, Derek, I hope this won't be the only conversation we have about it. I know how important it is, and I know how much it matters. We hear from people every day talking about the same thing. And, and again, everybody wants the same resolution. Stop, save lives and stop people from being addicted. But we got different pathways. We're getting there right now. I appreciate you coming on. Okay, thanks a lot. Have a great day. You bet. Derek Finkel joining us on Toronto Today. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Both the Siddiqui family and the Brady couple, we didn't take our kids, went to see uh, Guns N' Roses on uh, Sunday night at Rogers Centre with Chrissy Hine in the Pretenders opening. We could almost start there. Sheba joins me now. So we're at the same concert. What were your hopes expectations thoughts you stayed later than me also you got it I stayed out till the end you, you get endure i'm a wimp 
I left after November rain. I'm like, I saw Axel play the piano. Uh, oh, that's, I, I can die happy. That's it. That's yeah. all I need. Yeah, that was very impressive. Uh, <laughs> you know what? My hope was that Axel st- still had it. That's what I was. I hope I was hoping he wasn't just sort of drunk on stage. It was one hot mess where he's forgetting. the Didn't lyrics. you want him to say more in between songs? Didn't you want him to rant about there was nothing? He didn't rant about anything. No, times the have end, changed though, since 1991. That's true. But towards the end, he did speak. Were you there on stage when he was? Introdu- no, you missed it. So he was introducing everybody in the band. I saw that. No, no, I saw that. And then he intentionally, you know, he like pretended he, he forgot Slash. Yes, he forgot Slash. <laughs> Slash was incredible. I was so impressed with him. He's crazy good. He's a virtuoso. Would you say he's the best? The best modern guitarist, like since, um, I'd say since I started listening to music, I don't know. Because you look at all these people, who like Eric Clapton, people people will talk about people who were big in the 60s and 70s and to some extent the 80s. But for modern guitarists to still have it, to be in his, I think he's, I think he's still in his late 50s, which is amazing. Because yes. I think he was 21 yes. when the band really, really caught fire. Yeah, he's 58 years old. Amazing. Not 60 yet. And he's jumping off of a platform while still playing the I guitar. can't do that. You've seen me walk up the <laughs> staircase here to go to the second floor. Yeah, I, I'm sure you were th- you're like, Brady can't do that. And he's seven or eight years younger, or nine or 10 or 11 or 12 years younger than Slash. So I keep my age a secret. So Slash, yeah, Slash was amazing. Um, you stayed right till the end. Here's the problem, though. They do play. My, my party of four was almost universal. I went with a massive, massive Guns N' Roses fan, my friend Brad, his wife, my wife. And the concept is, and I saw what the ladies were saying, it's a really long show. You can probably tidy up that show and take out about eight songs. They played 30 oh, songs. I feel like you could have taken out like 12. Okay. <laughs> okay. You want? I think you want a tighter Guns N' Roses set in Toronto at Rogers Center that, that maybe is like 100 minutes. Yes. That's it. I would have been happy with that. Because, you know, I mean, the job that we have, come 11 p.m., we start yawning. It's a struggle. Right, and it's really got to be worth it. Or something major is going to be happening for you to, for you. It wasn't no school night, work night for us. Maybe uh, like Monday. Imagine if it was last night. No, I I wouldn't have gone. You wouldn't have gone. That would have been the difference. I don't go out on weeknights or when I have to wake up early. I'm thinking of seeing Peter Gabriel next Monday night, and it'll be he won't play as long. I'm not surprised. Uh, And he won't be. He won't jump from anything because he looks a bit fragile now, and he's like (laughs) seventy. He's like. (laughs) He may have a walker. Axel, you know what? I felt like Axel's the voice is gone. And here's the thing, like before you go out onto stage, you know, usually if you're uh, the lead singer, you're in the back, you're warming up, you're gargling, yes, you're getting your voice ready. You can tell he just like rolled out of bed at the hotel, had like a steak dinner, came over to the Rogers Center and said, okay, guys, let's go. I don't know. Maybe he checks in. His people make sure that the the, there's proper ventilation. You know what a big topic that was last three years. Like (laughs) there's proper ventilation at the Royal York or wherever they're staying at. Wherever. But I could tell his voice was not warm at all. So he took the first three or four songs to warm his voice up. And then he did Welcome to the Jungle. And then he got into it. Uh, Uh, But uh, his voice was kind of going in and out. And did you notice that Roger Center had audio issues? I didn't think it was that bad from where I was. Oh, I thought it was like his mic would go. I'm like, oh, his voice is really gone. And then I realized it was the mic. And people were tweeting about it saying this was the exact same thing that happened at the Jonas Brothers concert. Roger Center, get it together. So you didn't. My theory, our theory collectively riding the go train home was that that he's like people were taking the mic down. They're really cautious of when he may hit a bum note. Or when he doesn't hit something really strong. Oh, brutal. But I don't know that that's true. And I'll tell you, let's mention the the third sort of prominent member that's always been in the band, Duff McKagan. 
uh, just like like gangly blonde bass player. His vocals, he's got to sing everything because he sort of sings under deeper great than voice, Axl though. Rose, and he has a great voice. Yeah, so really great. Without voice. that, like he really, how, how would I put it? He he puts the coating, he puts the dressing on the salad underneath <laughs> Axl's vocals. Yes, to hide it, I guess, and keeps it all together. My so, Go Train conversation, the things that I heard <laughs> around, the things that I heard around on my Go Train, which was like slam, we we're like. It was just because people are coming from the CNE also, together. right? Going home. No, they skipped it. They oh. skipped it. They skipped the exhibition uh, stop. They said, if you're going there, get oh, off now. Because okay. we were slammed. We were like sardines in a can, just glued together. Yeah. And um, people were saying those weren't even his real teeth. Did you notice he was wearing dentures? He had very white teeth. He looked. It's not quite Matt Dillon, and there's something about Mary, <laughs> but it's in the it's in the vicinity. It's in the area code. You know, it was a bucket list concert for me. I always wanted to see them live. I've never seen them live before. Uh, so, because I was just way too young when they were actually tour. I was, I was a little, like a very young kid. I don't even know how I. Oh yeah, felt yeah I'm, I'm, I'm them. damn well impressed because they, they got on the radio. I remember a guy having a cassette at camp. I went first went to that camp near Perry Sound in 1987, and he had a cassette of Appetite for Destruction. He was from, I think he was from San Diego or San Francisco. I, I know they're not even close geographically, but I can't remember where he was from. And his name was Cody, and he was a tennis pro, and so we would hit together. And he had he had appetite for destruction as a cassette, and I didn't know anything about them. I just remember the name was unique, and then I think I heard "Sweet Child of Mine" on the radio like the next June. It took a long time for that album. "Welcome to the Jungle" was the first single, but "Sweet yes. Child of Mine" was the first song that all of us probably heard on the radio. Were you there for "Sweet Child of Mine"? I'm yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. was amazing. Now, now, but the one thing I'd say too is. I, I sold it to the Mrs. Brady and and our other female friend and I said because they were they were like ah you guys might want to go and I'm like it's a spectacle it's it's sixty percent spectacle forty percent concert I'd never seen so many concert T-shirts in years because concert T-shirts probably maybe you did when you went to see Taylor Swift in Nashville maybe oh, you it did was but crazy I, lineup do wouldn't you say seventy percent of people there including kids had Guns and Roses T-shirts. Yes. Yes. Or wearing a bandana. And I took my two boys and I said, hey, they saw them. They're like, oh, can we get one? And I'm like, 65 bucks a t-shirt. No, I'll get you one. That's what how much it was. I'm like, I'll get you one off of Amazon. Okay, that's what we'll do. I'm not paying 65 bucks. Oh, my gosh. Uh, also on the weekend, uh, the air show. And I saw something funny because there's a lot of debate about the air show and, and whether it bothers people or not. And I don't live downtown. But the, actually, the very friend I went to Guns N' Roses with was playing uh, golf. What a first world day that was, right? Golf and then Guns N' Roses. Anyway, he goes, we were playing and you'd be lining up a putt and you'd hear this sonic boom. And he's like, what's going on? Like, is there somebody street racing outside? And someone's like, that's the air show. And they fly so far past Toronto on their routes to get back. Like he was golfing practically in Rouge, Scarborough area. Like the planes almost go out that far and then and then circle back because they can cover that amount yeah, they of land and like. Did you go to the CNE at all this year? No, oh, I, I went. Feel bad. It was one of the highlights of my summer, and I had an awesome summer. I'm telling yeah. you, I love. We were there for nine hours, but we had a strategy. We got there. We went on a, on Saturday of long weekend, like two three days ago. So we had. A, I'm like, we're getting there right at 10 a.m. We went to all the crazy rides that have two three hour lineups. <laughs> We hit them first. I'm telling you, from 10 a.m. to noon, they were empty. Uh, so they went crazy. They enjoyed it. And then we just hung out. We did the I did the pavilion. They were bored out of their mind. I did some shopping. We did all. We did the kid area. We did all the games and the food. It was amazing. And I'll be honest with you. We saw the air show because we were, so we were walking around it. They're yeah, flying you above you, right? Yeah. And I stopped in my tracks and I sat down on a set of steps and I watched the whole thing and I loved it. 
I was, and honestly, it makes me think of Maverick. It makes the me loudness think of doesn't Gun. bother you. Not at all. I loved what I know. they were doing. I, I know. Thought, my kids got bored after a while, but my husband and I, we just sat there. We were just mesmerized by it. I think those these debates are all there about um, air, you know, air shows and, fi- and fireworks. Yeah, where fireworks there's going to be a fireworks shows. debate there's Always something to complain time. about. Just live life, guys. We're not going to make each other happy. I thought it was entertaining. They're skilled people. I, I loved watching it.